When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Welcome to another episode of Fenway Rundown, Mass Live's Red Sox podcast. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Christopher Cotillo. And we have as our special guest, and we're thrilled to have her this week, is renowned baseball architect and ballpark designer, Janet Marie Smith, who joins us from, of all places, Dodger Stadium. Janet, nice to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Uh, so much that we want to cover here, so we're going to jump right into it. Um, as I think even most casual baseball fans know, uh, your ballpark uh, design career, as it were, um, began in, with Camden Yards or Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Baltimore. Um, you, you had an interest as the ballpark was being built in the early 90s, replacing Memorial Stadium. You reached out to uh, both the Orioles and I think HOK, the architectural firm that was building it. What prompted that? Where did that come from where you wanted to get involved there? And and maybe a little bit on your fandom um, in, in baseball growing up. Well, my interest in being a part of what became Oriole Park at Camden Yards was really born out of an interest in cities. When I was working on my uh, urban planning degree at City College in New York, we had studied Baltimore as a city that had reinvented itself and had used the Inner Harbor, the, the Aquarium, the Science Center as a means of trying to draw people downtown and really think of it differently after industry had left. And when I heard that the Orioles built a new ballpark, my first reaction was kind of chef, so I like the one they got and had to sort of uh, homey feeling to it. Um, but a few months later, I just had to read the moment and I thought, there goes Baltimore looking to put intentionally three million enthusiastic fans right in the center of the city, take advantage of existing infrastructure, the light rail, the marked trains to Washington, as well as the parking garages that existed for downtown office buildings. Um, and I was really intrigued with this from a planning perspective. And as I learned more about this, I learned that the president, Larry Lucchino, really wanted the architecture of the ballpark to harken back to the uh, turn of the century parks like Ebbets, Fenway, Forbes, Wrigley. And that notion of a contextual ballpark in an urban setting really hit all, all cylinders for me. And that's why I was so interested in working on that. For Larry Lucchino, well, come to all Fenway fans, too. Right. 
Um, we, we, we just recently observed the 30th anniversary of the ballpark in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, Janet, it, it seems there's a real demarcation there with the construction of that ballpark. There's all the ballparks that were built before that, and then there's Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I think the new White Sox ballpark and uh, the Blue Jays ballpark in Toronto were the two right before that. But everything changes with Oriole Park, Camden Yards. Could you have had any idea that it would have, that its design, the blending of the retro with the modern conveniences, uh, could you have had any idea that it was going to be as influential and usher in this new era of ballpark construction in the United States? No, absolutely not. And I love quoting Larry Lucchino on this point too. As Larry often says, we were just looking to do the best ballpark that we could for Baltimore. The fact that it ended up having national relevance was, I think, um, a surprise to all of us, but not because we didn't have confidence in what we were doing. It's just that we were so laser focused on our own community. And I think that is one of the wonderful things about baseball and baseball parks is that each one is such a reflection of its own community. And I really hope that never changes. I can't help but worry still that, you know, there's a there's there's a movement out there just waiting to pounce and say baseball should get itself regularized like every other sport. And that would be such a loss. I think that the emotion of the place where baseball is played is so strong and so much a part of being kind of the tenth man on the team that it's really important that the place reflect the surroundings. So for us, that meant not only things like saving the Oklahoma warehouse and finding a means of justifying keeping that, uh, using that to dictate the field dimensions that we were on with a short right field line, uh, using the warehouse itself to um, set our own height limitations. But at the other end of the spectrum, just sort of celebrating the fact that the, the American flag that's hoisted eight point times a year at Camden Yards uh, is the one that hung over Fort McHenry. You know, it's there's something about um, how special the culture of a place is that I think is reflected in the ballpark. So no, we weren't worried about anybody else. Just just us. Just yeah. just our fans. Well, Janet, talking about culture and personality and, and all that when it comes to a ballpark. I don't think there's many places that compare to Fenway. Obviously, Sean and I worked there, so we might be a little bit biased. But obviously, you were instrumental in the renovations that took place uh, closer to the turn of the century in, in recent years. What was kind of your goal in being brought into that project? And what did you want to see kind of, I don't know, Fenway 2.0 is the right way, but just kind of modernizing the ballpark, but, but still keeping um, – really the personality that had made it so special for so long? Well, the thing that stays with me to this day is how I felt when Larry Lucchino called me and said, I think we may have a chance to own this club and we want to save this ballpark. Can you come and tell us if we're crazy or not? And I said, I don't need, I don't even need to get on a plane. I will, but you're not crazy. Because it always drove me a little bit mad that after Camden Yards opened, 
while certainly there were a lot of clubs that wanted to build new ballparks that focused on how to do it differently because they'd seen a different methodology with Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it drove me equally nuts that you had places like Fenway and their then owners, the Red Sox, looking at it and saying, oh, it's possible to have a yield thing. We could tear this down and we could build something that has the vibe of that, but um, has all the new amenities. And I thought, what a shame that we used many of the elements of Fenway as the hallmark to set the tone for Camden Yards from the use of steel trusses, uh, the masonry, the way that the Jersey Street was populated pregame and gave rise to what became known as Utah Street in Baltimore. And so I always thought it's what a shame to take the grandfather of them all and erase that authentic history in favor of one that at the time hadn't yet been written, you know, it's easier 30 something years later to mm -hmm. say with confidence how Camden Yards uh, finds its way into the timeline of ballparks, but then, then, we, then we didn't know. Uh, so I love the idea to prove that there was a way of, quote, renovating Fenway successfully. And I use the term renovate in quotes because. If you really think about the dictionary definition of renovation, that's not what we did. Yes, we did fix up some things inside the original footprint, but the addition of the Geno building, the laundry building in the outfield, the city's willingness to allow us to use Jersey Street, the land rights over uh, Lansdowne, close traffic on Van Est to be able to use it for player parking, like all of those things are almost more creative use of real estate than they are true renovation. But it gave us a larger footprint to work with. It gave us the ability to give our fans and players alike the space they needed for the things that um, you expect out of a new ballpark. So what did it feel like? Well, it felt like rescuing, you know, a favored, uh, you know, something from, from a certain depth. And obviously the place you're at right now, another special one. And uh, Sean and I often talk about Dodger Stadium being one of our favorite places. Uh, and we were just, I guess the last time both of us were there was the 2018 World Series and covering that. Um, and <laughs> the, what is, it's different, a lot different than Fenway or some of these other places. How different was kind of the project to renovate and rejuvenate that place? Well, it, it, it is so different, and I, I love that. You know, if, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like Fenway's opposite. You know, Fenway's very neat and compact, and, oh, neat's not the right word. It's very tight and compact <laughs> um, and very uh, asymmetrical, very intimate, uh, very traditional architecture. And Dodger Stadium is exactly the opposite. You know, 56,000 seats, it's the largest in all of baseball. It's the only ballpark that opened during um, the 60s. It's got this mid-century modern vibe with these hexagonal-shaped scoreboard and rainbow-colored seats. Been, and, of course, the 60s are back, so it's easy to love it today. <laughs> In the 80s, I think people were kind of head scratching their head. Was it, was it worth it? Um, but it's, it's got many of the same qualities that drove 
Fenway needs drove the needs at Dodger Stadium. You know, the bathrooms were too small, the concessions were inadequate, the kind of uh, experience that fans look to have in a ballpark is far beyond just the nine innings of baseball. So having taking this very symmetrical building um, with its perfect seats, with the perfect sight lines and figuring out how we could add the kind of standing room sections that met ADA, uh, the social areas, the places to mill around without mucking up its picture perfect postcard view was a real challenge and, and one that I love. Um, no such thing as symmetry in Boston. I'm curious before I get to a plant question here, Janet, what, what do you think of some of the newer ballparks where by design, they are building areas for people to more socialize than actually watch the game? I think you know what I'm talking about. There are, you know, there are uh, high tops for people to drink craft beer and they say Gen Xers and younger fans aren't into hanging on every pitch. They want to uh, be with their friends and stand in an open area and socialize. Does that, as a traditionalist, does that rub you the wrong way or can that be done in some new places and still be okay with you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a-okay with that. I think anything that helps baseball grow its popularity and make it a place where fans want to be is a good thing. And I don't know if it's that counter to tradition either. You know, if you look at the photographs of the ballparks around the turn of the century, the outfield was often packed with fans who were not sitting in a stadium chair. Um, my, one of my favorite photographs of Fenway Park were uh, fans literally on the playing field. You know, they, 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 they what, never mind being beyond the outfield fence. So I think that notion of watching the game from a variety of different perspectives has always been with us. It's just being scripted into the program today in a way that's different than it might have been a century ago. Um, but I totally get that we're asking people to choose to be at a baseball game uh, during their leisure time. And that often that means taking people with you who may or may not care as much about the starting lineup or who's pitching tonight, but creating an environment where they can be together, have fun, but you've got sort of a bigger thing that brings us all together in the baseball game. I think it's a, it's a fun way to think about the sport. This may be better suited for an engineer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, uh, given the work that has been done, much of it marshaled by you at Fenway, what do you think can be additionally done at the ballpark, if anything? And what's the, the shelf life of a ballpark that is already coming up on 120 years? Well, that's a really good question because I have thought a lot about that. And I think the answer is really how elastic is the ballpark. In many ways, the structure itself has a long life. And where it doesn't, it's been reinforced. You know, a lot of the columns at Fenway Park are not the 19, they're not the 1912 columns, they're not even 1934. They've been added over the years, or we've added piles that reinforce the ones that were there. So the authenticity of it uh, has already been eroded, but not optically. It still feels like your grandfather's ballpark. Uh, and systems are always being upgraded by systems. I mean, you're 
your air conditioning, your heating, your plumbing, those things, those things don't last more than 20 or 30 years, but they're easy to replace. And I think that in America, we're so quick to say it doesn't work, let's boil it up and start over. And I love that um, at Fenway Park and at Dodger Stadium, and, and to a certain extent in Baltimore with saving the warehouse, that it wasn't out of just a sense of nostalgia. It's somewhat the, uh, call it what you like, environmental correctness, sustainability, making good use of the investment that's already been made that you inherited with the purchase of the club and really making it work. And the sort of corollary to that is you're never really finished. And I think we see that all the time, that even the newer parts are constantly making changes to respond to different trends and the way fans experience the game and the way players and their families travel to different parks and the way they train at the ballpark. The broadcasting needs are so different today. Writers' needs are different. Writing is different. You know, we don't have the same uh, kind of media coverage. So I think you never stop looking for ways to adjust and respond to those needs. It's very different um, in some ways, or maybe not in some ways, for more traditional, whether it's residential or, or office. You're always sort of looking to adjust to the new user that just arrived. Following up on that a little bit, you know, the, the focus of the Red Sox at this point and the focus on Fenway is outside the ballpark in the Fenway Corners development. I'm not sure if you're um, involved with that at all, but that's a big focus of what they plan on doing in the next you know few years. And this has been something that's really come up around the country where a lot of places the ballpark is just one piece of the puzzle where there is a neighborhood or kind of a city right around the ballpark in a lot of ways where you look at the battery in Atlanta, you look at what they've done in Arlington with some of the, those places around the new ballpark and the Cowboy Stadium. And um, I know the Mets are, are building one of those mixed-use places and, and what was a parking lot at City Field. From what you know about Fenway Corners and, and the neighborhood and revitalizing that, is that the natural, logical next step for the next era of Fenway? I think it probably is, but I'll just comment on that trajectory because it is one that I paid attention to for years. I mentioned Baltimore initially being interesting to me because it wasn't a part of the city, but that was the city taking the investment they were making in Camden Yards and using it to fuel development. Mm-hmm. We don't think of it as being generated by Oriel Park and Camden Yards, but go get a Google Earth photo from 1992 and compare it to today, even without the team scripting additional development, you see the surface parking lots that, that once separated Camden Yards from the traditional downtown have all been filled in with hotels and residential buildings. And another sort of picking on sort of the trajectory, I would say that the Petco Park in San Diego is perhaps the the best example of a ballpark that was sited in an urban setting to take advantage of existing infrastructure and, and set up in a way that development around it would knit it together with the traditional gas lamp district. And again, it's just really interesting because Google Earth will let you turn back the clock to see the difference in what that looked like in 1995 before the Padres focused on that and what it looks like today. 
I think what we're seeing today is teams not just being used as a catalyst for development, but using it themselves as a catalyst for development that they control. And I think done well, that's phenomenal. And I'd say the Padres is maybe one of my favorite examples. I also think that the San Francisco Giants have done an amazing job with Mission Rock adjacent Oracle Park. And that was a long-term strategy to be located adjacent China Basin and to help that part of San Francisco sort of knit itself back together. So um, it's curious to me that this is being spotlighted as a new trend when to me it's been something that's been with us for decades now. And one locally that not on the major league level, but a place you were very intimately involved with Polar Park. That's kind of the goal in Worcester, very close to where I grew up and trying to drive development in, um, in that city. What obviously the longtime connections to Larry Lacchino being a big part of it, but what, what drew you to that project and, and what did you, what were your takeaways really from, from working in what they call the heart of the Commonwealth here and building that ballpark, which has been a huge success over the last two years. And it's one of my favorite places, home of the Blue Sox. The development there is noteworthy because that former industrial site, which had been empty for almost 50 years, I think was one that the city thought, golly, we'll never fill it up. Like, what are we, what are we going to, how are we going to ever bridge that much of the traditional downtown to the canal district with that kind of development? And the ballpark serves to fill a big gap of that. And what is being done by Madison Properties, who's developing the rest, is to generate enough revenue from that new development to help cover the debt service on Polar Park. So there you have an example of a development really used, being used to pull two parts of the city together, but also take advantage of the additional taxes that are generated from that to be the public sector's contribution to the funding of that ballpark, along with the lease payments uh, that the Blue Sox make for Polar Park every year. And why did I want to work on that park? That is just a wonderful scale to work at. I, I love working on something where you've got, you know, eight to 9,000 fans per game, and it's um, a chance to really do something uh, very casual in terms of the experience because minor league baseball is so affordable and it's so easy to bring your kids and bring your grandma to really make a family outing out of it. So thinking of how we could um, make that an experience that really would serve a wide population was a lot of fun to work on. One final question for you, Janet, and that's this. Why do we, the three of us and a lot of sports fans, invest so much in baseball ballparks, more so than any other sport. Nobody cares in the big picture what a new NFL stadium is like. No one gets romantic about comparing, uh, you know, the old soldier field to the new one. Um, There's a different thought process and a different level of emotional investment with baseball ballparks compared to the other sports. Why is that? I think it's because everyone is different, and I really hope we work to keep it that way. I think the fact that the NFL, NBA, hockey, pick any other sport, have dictated field dimensions, 
have seating that is clearly uh, graded A, B, and C within that, that, the confines of that means that you have a game that is predictable and it can be played in most any venue and other than the weather, things don't change much. Whereas in baseball, it's way more than the weather. For sure, altitude and humidity and all of all of that can change the game. But the most important thing would be the different field dimensions, the different heights of the fences, the amount of foul territory. And even though we have netting up now to protect fans, um, I still think that foul territory and how it's modulated is so important to whether you're playing in a pitcher's park or a hitter's park. And I think it's the idea that baseball fans think of a journey to all 30 parks as being part of the lore that drives them to stay with the game is one of the things that does make it so special. There's no other sport that has the architecture of its home on somebody's bucket list to do. Great Janet Marie Smith, celebrated and award-winning baseball developer, ballpark developer and architect, has been our guest on this episode of Fenway Rundown. Janet, we thank you so much for your time and contributions. It was great. We could go on talking about ballparks all night. We know you're busy. We thank you for your time, and thanks for being on with us. Thank you for having Love talking baseball. A reminder that throughout the winter, we're going to be taking a lot of questions from our Red Sox Insider Text Program, where you have the ability to text me, Chris Cotillo, Chris Smith, stay up to date on all the Red Sox news. It's $4.99 a month with a free 14-day trial period. And to join and check it out, all you have to do is text JOIN to 617-751-6257. Then simply click on the link and subscribe today. It's a lot of fun. People are enjoying it. We think you will, too. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.